Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, before we get into this awesome episode, I want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with them, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through the providing of the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Have you ever set your trumpet on the ground and then picked up your phone and then you actually dropped your phone on your trumpet and dented it? Because I have. <laughs> when that happens, Houghton Horns is here for you. At Houghton Horns, they do their repair work in-house. So you know you're getting one of their skilled craftsmen doing the work to bring your instrument back to 100%. They also do customizations. So if you were looking to customize your instrument for your specific needs, look no further than Houghton Horns. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm coming at you from Charlottesville, Virginia. I just finished up playing La Boheme with the Charlottesville Opera. Uh, it was a really great week, and now here we're on a Sunday afternoon. I'm on a mobile setup here. Uh, it's less than ideal for me, but I'm going to do my best to be able to bring you a great discussion on skill development for musicians. I think sometimes us as musicians can forget that what we do in the practice room is the development of skill. We are trying to figure out how to find solutions to the problems that we're facing and that there is sort of an order of operations, I think, or at least an optimal uh, order of operations that it may not always happen this way, but we should probably understand to some degree what skill development looks like so that we can sort of order our work in the practice room to reflect where we are in the development of a skill so that we can give ourselves the best chance to be able to ingrain good habits and start to make the work we do in the practice room stick in performance and overall just make things easier and more consistent. So I'm going to be sharing some clips with you, similar to what I did a few episodes ago with Steffi Cohen, except this time it's coming from a podcast called Table Talk or Dave Tate's Table Talk, rather. Dave Tate is the owner and operator of Elite FTS, which is a company that supplies everything that you could ever need in the gym and also really quality education for understanding how to get more out of your time in the gym. Dave did a podcast on skill development and he just sort of talked through how he thinks it works after 30 years of coaching people and some problems people can face and some examples of what he thinks it can look like. And I just felt it had so many applications for us as musicians that I wanted to bring this conversation to you and just hopefully it's some good food for thought uh, for organizing your work and your practice and just kind of understanding what skill development is and how we go about doing it. So in this 
this episode, we're going to cover four different points. The first one is going to be talking about these seven different aspects of skill development. The second thing we're going to cover is how things can go wrong in skill development. The third thing we're going to cover is some possible solutions in our practice sessions to reflect a desire for skill development. And the fourth point is going to be about technical proficiency uh, being low-hanging fruit. This is what Dave Tate, uh, you'll hear in the quote that I share, what he talks about as sort of a first step when trying to figure out what is an optimal way to spend your time. Often technical proficiency and making that better is a good way or a good place to start rather um, when trying to think about long-term progress. So hopefully all this will make sense. We're going to dive in here on the seven aspects of skill development and uh, yeah, let's get started. This first quote that we're going to hear from Dave is the first aspect of skill development, which is education or instruction. Uh, Let's listen to what he's got to say, and then we'll dive into how it applies to us. From the skill development, there's what I've seen over my span as a washed up meathead now, right, is with learning, say you're teaching a squat or you're teaching a bench or you're teaching any one of these compound lifts. There's a process with that to where there's going to be, you're going you're gonna to instruct it. You're going to have some people that are more visual learners, so audio learners, whatever it's going to be. The first aspect is instruction. It could be the person reading it, watching a video, whatever it's going to be. They have to be exposed to it. And then with that, they need to be exposed with suggestions, right? So cues. And here's the thing with cueing. From my perspective, I don't care at that level or when I'm first working with somebody what cue I have to use. It makes no difference to me. I just want to provide the cue that's going to allow the person to do the skill the way that I want it to be done. Right? So if I have to say something that's going to sound completely ass backwards, to somebody that's listening from the outside, I don't care. And ah, I don't like to say I don't care because when you say you don't care, little side conversation here, when you say you don't care, you're actually saying that you do. Um, I'm indifferent, let's put it that way. So it makes no difference to me at all what somebody from the outside thinking, feeling, saying, posting, I don't, it makes no difference, not at all. What I care about is that the person that I'm working with is going to do what I want them to do because the goal is for them to be able to do that skill if it's a squat bench whatever the lift is right to be able to do that and feel the way it's supposed to feel because what I'm trying to build with them is a checklist that they're going to be able to run through their head I don't know what that checklist is going to be for them. It will be different with each person. Some people that I've worked with are more visual. So that checklist is gonna start, that coaching is gonna start with me saying, you know, picture yourself standing up solid compared to stand up solid. 
And one of the ways that I can tell that if I'm working with the person in person is so if I'm standing off to the side and every time I'm trying to tell them or to coach them something, if they turn their head, that's a cue for me to stand in front and to start using more visual type of cues. Again, the goal here is to be able to get them to do what I want them to do. Secondary, after that, and this can be, this can be over one session, it can be over a week, it can be over a year. That all depends on how coachable the person is. Some people, you tell them to do something one time, it's locked in and they do it. That's not everybody. That's, that's the minority to be completely transparent. Most people kind of fall in the middle Then there's gonna be the people on the other end that you have to just stick with one thing over and over and over and over for weeks, sometimes months to be able to get that right. So while you're going through this process and coaching them, you have to figure out kind of where they fall on this spectrum because if you overload them with technical aspects, they're never gonna learn it. So you have to kind of meet them where they are in that regard as well. What you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do to better state that, is to come up with a mental checklist that I can use with them. You know, so if it's a bench press, it may be something like lay tight, stretch your back, you know, drive the shoulders into the pad. So I just throw things out there because it could be different for anybody. You know, root your feet, push into the pad, squeeze the bar, hold after they pull it out, hold, 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 lower or tuck, tight, 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 press, 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 flare, whatever it's going to be. What I want to try to do is to break it down into four or five things that they're going to be able to start using in their own head. So it's, I'm being very general here because these mental notes, cues, suggestions, they're going to be different for everybody the way that I do, the way that I do it. There, I have been doing this for so long. Like I said, coaching aspect wise, oh, well over 30 years. For so long, every time I've tried to use the same things with everybody, it's been a freaking disaster. It's always been a train wreck. And you, again, you got to meet them where they are. So that's where I do that. So the first goal is to teach them with instruction to be able to get them right. Develop that mental checklist. When they have that mental checklist, you'll be cueing that mental checklist for them during that session over and over and over again. All right, so as far as musicians, I think we're all pretty familiar with this step. There's really no way around the need for quality instruction to be able to progress on our instruments. And, you know, I myself, I give tips and instructional videos on Instagram and YouTube, and I really hope that they can help supplement a person's practice and give them some good food for thought. But it's definitely not a replacement for having a teacher or a coach working with you to uncover your weaknesses and to provide solutions for them. I hope that this makes sense. I hope this distinction makes sense. Having someone working with 
you is different than having someone sharing some advice on the internet in general. Your weaknesses are your weaknesses, and maybe some of those tips are going to be useful for you, uh, sort of in a once in a while type thing, uh, but there's no replacement for someone watching after you, knowing how progression works, knowing how skill development works, and being able to guide you through that process. And one of the things that I think a coach can provide that's really effective, or a teacher can provide as well, is various cues to think about while playing. And I've personally been really interested in this idea of using cues for a little while. And the reason why is I read in the book With Winning in Mind by Lanny Bassam about how we have these different aspects of performance. One of them is the conscious mind, which is what we're thinking about when we perform uh, or when we do something. And then we have the subconscious mind where our actual skill that we have developed is held. And so we need to basically be able to occupy the conscious mind so that our subconscious skill can come forward. And I find that the best way to do that is through various cues that get us focused on something that is positive or something that's simple, that's related to the activity we're doing that can get everything lined up. I really believe that being able to put our focus in the right place when trying to execute a skill with tech with technical proficiency, excuse me, is absolutely necessary. And so, you know, he talked about that checklist of things that he would try to give to a client or uh, someone in a seminar that he's working with to be able to say, your weaknesses are such that these cues will help you. And then they get this checklist that they can go through. So for me, an application of this step is making sure at the end of a session with a teacher or a coach that you end up getting a checklist of things that you will be able to repeat in the practice room. No matter how much information you gather in a lesson, if you you can't produce the result on your own, it's not going to amount to much. This is the value in recording a lesson is that you don't necessarily have to try to remember every single piece of information that's valuable. You can always go back and listen again. So whether you record the lesson or you get, uh, again, a checklist of things, however it is, we need to be able to remember what the particular fix for our problem was that we learned so that we can continue to imprint it uh, in the practice room. That's going to lead us straight into the next discussion or the next quote from Dave talking about uh, the second step or the second aspect of skill development, which is auto-suggestion. The goal that you want to do is to get that mental checklist, whatever it is, to a point where they're repeating it in their head. So it's with auto-suggestion. And this can take time. For most people, this is not going to be something that's going to happen in one session. You know, if you're coaching them or if it's a seminar or consulting that I'm doing with them, they'll leave and they'll have a mental checklist that's written on a piece of paper that they're going to be able to start working on. And they can work on that in the gym, obviously, but they can also work on it in visualization. So visualization exercises because the mind needs to be trained with this as well. So it's a missed opportunity if the only time they're ever doing this is in the gym. They can be doing this hundreds of times per week just through visualization. And so in my opinion, this step between instruction and then the next step we're about to come to is incredibly crucial. This checklist is what leads us to great playing, and we need to make sure that we can run this checklist on our own, separate from being reminded. This is how we begin to become more independent in our playing, is we hear about what our weaknesses are, we get instruction on how to improve that, and then we go 
to the practice room and we begin to say, all right, I recognize these problems. I know how to solve them because of this checklist that I've been doing day in and day out over and over. So more than likely in a practical sense, this is going to be, you know, the actual week or two uh, of practice following a lesson. And as Dave mentioned, some people will have things click right away and some people won't. And so for us, I'm sure some skills will click faster for some people than others. And even in your own practicing life, some skills are probably going to come to you more easily than others. But regardless of how quickly it happens, we need to make sure that we have this checklist and we need to make sure that we are proactively imprinting that checklist each and every practice session. So right there is really the application. We're just making sure we're referencing the checklist each practice session until we can go through it in our own head on our own. So it just becomes part of how we view our playing on the instrument. Instead of referencing this checklist, we now say in our head, we just know to go through the checklist and it's there. The goal of all of this work is to understand what successful technical execution looks like for any given skill that we work on. After auto-suggestion, after we move through this and we've begun diagnosing our own issues and we can recognize how to fix them with regularity, we're going to move to this next stage, which you'll hear Dave say everything is moving towards this, la- uh, this next part of it, which is where things become more automatic. Let's hear what Dave has to say. Where we're going here is for this to become automatic. So... Th- You want to get them, and if you're the athlete or you're the lifter, you want to get to a point where you don't have to think about it and all of this just happens. It's automatic. That is critical to getting to a point where you can lift maximal weights and then be able to recover from them, which I'll talk about later. That's where we're going here. So the first step is instruction. The second is the auto-suggestion. And the third is for it to become automatic. Again, this can take years, but this is the process. This is how it's going through. So this is really where we want to be as players. Even if it's very simple, we want to be able to feel like we can produce sound on our instrument in a way where things are just automatic. We don't have to think super deeply about what to do. We've done that kind of work, and now it happens with uh, more ease. And once things become automatic, we don't really actually have to go backwards that much. And to me, this is actually the value of going slow in the beginning uh, in regards to skill acquisition. You know, as Dave said, this step can take years of work. And in my own journey, I guess you want to call it, but my own practicing life, I have a great story about this. When I was in grad school, um, I took eight auditions in my first year uh, at Northwestern. And so I was certainly busy with repertoire and trying to learn excerpts and all that kind of stuff. But the thing I remember the most from my time there, especially my first year, is Barbara and I just worked nonstop on trying to get my sound to be more open and more free. I I just remember spending the majority of many of my lessons looking out her window over Lake Michigan 
Michigan, just trying to get it so my sound would travel. She would not give up on this thing. And it took the majority, if not that whole entire year for me to really start to understand what that means. And now in my playing, I feel that it's much easier and significantly more automatic to play with freedom. But at that time, it just took a long time for me to figure out what that looked like. And sometimes that can happen, but it's worth it now because the trumpet is free and it's much easier for me now. And so I'm glad I spent that year really digging in and not giving up on that particular goal because it basically means that now things are much easier. And so if we rush our way through the process and we think things are automatic when they aren't, the problem we run into is we risk imprinting things in a way that we don't want. So an application, something to take away and to think about is one indicator that things are becoming more automatic is that things begin to feel easier in our playing. So in my own practice systems and my fundamental routines and stuff, I start to notice around the end of week two or the beginning of week three, uh, things just become easier for me. It's like weird. It's like a switch. It's I've been really focused and trying to imprint good habits for the first week, first week and a half or so. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, I don't have to think as much and things just work, but I really was diligent in how I approached those first two weeks. And I think that's why things become easier and more automatic. So what we're aiming to do is imprint the checklist that will lead to doing the skill the right way until we can do it without too much thought. Again, this is the goal we're moving towards. And from here, Dave's quotes, I think need a little bit of translation to be fully applicable for musicians. So I'm just going to play a much longer clip that's going to include the last four aspects of skill development, and then we will discuss afterwards what they mean for musicians. Once it gets to the point where it's starting to become automatic, and you can see that it's automatic, most of the time, not 100% of the time, because it's never going to be 100% of the time. But most of the time, that's when you want it to become automatic with speed. And this isn't just lifting weights. This can be anything. It can be any type of skill acquisition that, that you, you can always do it slow with the visual clue. But when you start applying speed to it, things change because now it's got to be automatic fast. You know, applying this applying the skill walking through or at half speed is completely different than applying the skill at full speed. So the goal is to get it applied at full speed first. After that, the next step is to be able to get it supply to be able to get it to a point where it can be done with speed and strength. So if it is a squat now, to be able to do this with compensatory acceleration, lifting the weight with maximum force, lifting the weight is, is trying to lift the weight with, trying to squat and stand up as fast as you possibly can with, with the heavier load. And to do that with a maximal load. So you're using what's called compensatory acceleration, standing up as fast as you possibly can with that maximal load. So that is that next part, is to be able to do this with speed and strength. Once that's mastered, then the athlete needs to be trained to be able to do this under a fatigue state. So can they do this after multiple sets. So let's say it's dynamic effort training or some type of lactic acid tolerance training or 
let me simplify it a little bit. Say you're going to have them do 15 sets of three repetitions on any of the basic core lifts. Can they still have that skill at the end of the 15 sets? What if you did 30 sets? Is this going to happen when they start to fatigue? That's an important aspect because from there you want to get them to do this with fatigue with all these other attributes I talked about, but also while under stress. Can they do this on a platform? Can they do this on their third attempt squat in a powerlifting meet when they have to make that lift to stay in the meet? Can they perform that skill the way that it's supposed to be? I don't want to say perfectly. I keep wanting to say perfectly, but nothing's ever going to be perfect. Can they perform that skill in the fourth quarter when they're super tired and the game is on the line? This is all part of that skill acquisition. So this whole process, you're kind of starting from just learning the skill, being introduced to the skill, practicing the skill, doing this build, the skill with speed, doing the skill with strength, doing the skill in a fatigue state, and then while under pressure. Okay, so Dave spoke about doing things uh, in a way that's automatic, but then we need to add speed because things change. Uh, for me, instead of speed of the bar or getting it so you're doing the whole thing put together, we're just going to think of short easy exercises. So maybe before when we're trying to get a particular skill like first attacks or articulation or flexibility or something like that, we're trying to get this to be more automatic. We're doing maybe uh, drills or we're doing things to try to help us understand how to do it. When we feel more confident in our ability to make it more automatic, then we're going to start doing shorter, easier exercises so that we can start to put it together in a more musical context. Moving on to the strength part, we're going to do short exercises still, but we will think uh, more complex. We want to add some complexity and some difficulty to the exercises to begin challenging ourselves in that way. Uh, once we feel like we have a relative understanding uh, and more difficult and complex exercises, this is actually then when he adds fatigue, right? I think it's interesting. He's not adding the concept of um, introducing fatigue uh, specifically until this late into the skill development process. And it's something I think we should all think about is we're, as trumpet players especially, we're very concerned with endurance and we should be because it's a major concern of ours. Uh, but just in general, the idea of endurance being a function of being able to play with healthy habits basically means that if we can produce sound in a healthy and consistent way, then it won't really matter if we're tired or we're fresh, we'll still be able to produce sound in that way. So if we want to add fatigue sort of training, uh, we should then take those complex exercises and then gradually lengthen the exercises to begin to challenge ourselves to keep uh, the skill at a high level while being in a more fatigued state. And then the idea of adding stress in a powerlifting competition would translate for us. That would be adding stress in terms of a concert or an audition or just some other performance-like situation. 
I hope all this makes sense. So um, to put it all together, I think Dave has a beautiful quote in there about, you know, learning the skill, practicing the skill, adding layers of difficulty. So to sum this up a little bit, I think for musicians, we start with learning the skill, which means we're being taught by a teacher or a coach. Hopefully at that point, we've been given a checklist of things or different cues that we're going to focus on so that we can begin practicing those cues, that checklist in the practice room so that we can ingrain that checklist, we can begin to auto-suggest the solutions for us until things are more automatic or easier. Then we're going to begin expanding the work to include shorter, easier exercises to learn how to execute the skill more quickly and in a more musical context. And then from there, we're going to begin expanding the work to keep with the shorter exercises, but actually to then introduce more challenging repertoire to drive further comprehension. Then to induce uh, practice of the skill in a fatigue state, we're going to begin lengthening the exercises or adding more repetitions of shorter exercises or some combination of them both. And then finally, we'll hopefully have the ability to test our skill development under stress in a performance type setting. So I really think understanding this kind of uh, skill development process will really help us gauge where we might be in the development of any, any given skill and should help us be able to communicate our struggles uh, to teachers or coaches more effectively. So ho- I know that's a lot of information. Uh, hopefully it's just, like I said, good food for thought. Uh, we're going to talk about now how things might go wrong in the skill development um, sort of progression, I guess. Um, yeah, let's move on to that next step and we'll uh, continue discussing. So now we're going to get into a discussion about how things can go wrong in the process of skill development. This will be a shorter talk than the previous point, but I think it's important to include. So let's hear what Dave has to say, and then we'll talk about it. Where things get disrupted from what I've seen is trainers, coaches, whatever you want to call them, start trying to implement of a lot of these skill acquisition processes too soon. So I'm trying, I'm at a loss of words for what they, um, gut check training, um, whatever. A lot of strength coaches, a lot of trainers will take relative beginners and just fatigue the absolute crap out of them just to see if it will develop a hard work ethic or I, I, like I said, I can't think of the phrase that I'm looking for here, but you guys know what I'm talking about, you know, to, to build character, guts, whatever you want to call it, which is just stupid if you're doing it too soon, because it's, it's, kind of stupid regardless but if you're doing it too soon it's way out of order you there's no way you can expect that skill to be performed in any type of manner that will technically be efficient if you're just you have to understand that with skill development and any of the lifts or any of the technical aspects with any sport bad reps are not what you want Bad reps or are going to develop more bad reps. So the, the more 
technically proficient reps, the more technically proficient the lifter or the athlete is going to be in the long term. So this is a really interesting discussion for me, this idea that we might be moving too fast or that we're just doing things in a wrong order or something like that. Uh, you know, it's what I'm learning a little bit is that this is one of the places where powerlifting and music differs a lot. Powerlifters can decide when they want to do competitions and they can put all of their energy and effort into preparation for that one competition or maybe three competitions throughout the year. And, you know, at the highest level, they're able to plan years in advance for all the different competitions they want to do. For musicians, as we all know, it's our work is often guided by whatever music we have coming up and it doesn't really allow space for long-term skill development. And so in the case of younger students, especially, I, I have a story about this in just a second, it can often result in asking them to do things outside of their abilities, like in ensembles or something like that. And it's going to increase the possibility of bad reps accumulating over time. Here's a few examples I have of this. When I was younger, I was an undergrad. I played, you know, recitals like everybody else does or played concerts. And I always felt like I generally played not always well, but the idea is as I, uh, I got better, I would you know, be able to play more consistently, but no matter how well I felt like I played, I always felt like it was, you know, 90 or 95% of what I wanted to have happen. And I never really understood how to get to a hundred percent. I remember asking like how to close that five or 10% gap. And you know, if I were to think critically about the way that I practiced back then, I would argue that part of the struggle I had was that I don't know if I ever prepared anything at any point to 100%. And I think, to be honest, for me now, the reason I have all of these practice systems that I'm working through is because... That's how I came to understand how to bridge this last 5% is all these really deep, methodical ways of thinking about it. And so it would make sense if I would do my stuff and my lessons that I was assigned and I would practice it and then come into the lesson and play it 90 to 95% uh, the way I wanted it to go or whatever I wanted it to be. And then that's really wherever I stopped. I never would have started to dig deeper into what kinds of systems I might need to play play closer to 100%. And you know, I was young. I wasn't necessarily ready to have these kinds of conversations or ready to think that deeply, or maybe I didn't want to think that deeply. Uh, but that's kind of uh, uh, my sort of assessment is the way that I, my life looked at that point. Maybe I didn't have time to dedicate towards things being 100%. You know, and it's just because we're busy. We have, I had ensembles and a, like I was saying just a second ago, I took eight auditions when I was in grad school. So I was constantly working on excerpts and some that were too hard for me. And so this is exactly emblematic of the problem that Dave is describing is I'm not necessarily sticking exactly in the spot of skill development I needed to be in. And maybe that's unavoidable. But as I also described with Barbara, there was a constant thread of working on opening up my sound and playing with more freedom throughout the entire year. So it didn't matter that all, that although I was doing all of these other things that were difficult and pushing my limits and maybe not necessarily, you know, the most optimal place for me to be, I did have a thread that was running through addressing, you know, at least one of my major weaknesses um, in a way where I was always playing exactly where I needed to be, you know, easier exercises, easier A2s where I could really focus on playing with a free sound. And so, and, and really learning how to do that one thing, focusing 
focusing on that one thing made such a huge impact on the overall ease with which I play the trumpet now. And so the general application that I think we could take, there's two of them. Number one is even though we always can't control, or even though we can't always control, sorry, how much material we have to play or how difficult it is. Again, like students have ensembles and lessons and other commitments. And, you know, me as a professional, I'm not always in control of what's programmed. Well, actually, I'm never in control of what's programmed in the orchestra. And maybe I choose to do a recital or something like that where I might be in control, but I'm often not in control. Even though that's true, uh, we might be able to honestly assess what our biggest needs are and design something that will allow us to even spend just 10 minutes working on a long-term goal or working towards the development of whatever that weakness may be over the long term. So let's just say you say, what's my biggest weakness? I'm going to design something that allows me to spend 10 minutes working on that each day. So even though other things may not be optimal and you're sort of just trying to make sure you can cover those bases and be ready for all the different things you have to do, maybe we can spend 10 minutes for us and say, no matter what, I'm going to, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be in the optimal place of skill development, something like that. And then another application, um, is, and this is, as a reality. And I know a lot of teachers who can get frustrated sometimes because the value of the summer is this for students or for people in a job like mine. We have this opportunity where we are not being told what to work on. We have no one else saying this is what you need to do. So this is really your best and my best opportunity to assign things that are going to work directly on your own weaknesses and to develop the skills that you want to develop in the most sustainable way possible. So like I said, I know some teachers who have students who just don't play over the summer at all. And you know, maybe you work in a job or maybe you're busy. Maybe there are extenuating circumstances, but there are other times where maybe students just aren't motivated because they don't have those other types of things to motivate them like ensembles or lessons, but trying to view it as I have this opportunity opportunity to really dig into my own weaknesses in a way that I would not have any other time, I think can really uh, be a, a motivating and encouraging way to look at that and one that uh, might be um, helpful for a lot of people. So just like I said, I think it's it's worth thinking about the idea that sometimes the way that we are approaching things in terms of difficulty of exercise might be moving too fast through a particular skill development process? And can we assign or play easier exercises to address that? Or can we say, you know what, I can't do much about some of this difficult repertoire, but I can make sure something in my routine is the right uh, difficulty for me so that I can have something that's really uh, dialed in for my particular needs right now. So, Hopefully uh, that makes sense. Uh, That's enough discussion for that. We're going to move on to possible solutions and ways we could think about approaching our practice sessions uh, for skill development purposes. So this next quote is Dave giving an example of what he thinks could be an optimal way for a power lifter in this case to think about organizing their routines to uh, put skill development at the forefront and really making sure that we're maximizing our time um, when we maybe need to address 
our understanding of how to properly execute a skill. Uh, this is an interesting discussion for me. We're going to hear from him and then I'll kind of dive into, uh, for me, like what I think is a great way to think about it for musicians. If I'm working with a power lifter or if I'm just working with anybody that wants to build their squat and there's a, we're a part of this skill acquisition process and they're learning the movement, and I'm trying to teach them the movement in the early phases here. I would much rather have them do 10 sets of two than two sets of 10. The reason for that is, for most lifters, they're gonna mentally check out after two or three reps, especially if they're closer to a beginner or a young intermediate. They're, they're not gonna be paying attention. So, the, and, from a competitive standpoint or a maximum lift standpoint, PR standpoint, whatever you want to call it. The only lift that matters is the first one. So when trying to develop maximal strength, what you're trying to develop is the the proficiency for them to do a maximal repetition, complete it, but do it in a way that's in a safe manner that they're not going to get hurt and they're going to be able to display their maximal output. So if I'm having them do two sets of 10, there's a very good chance that the technical reps that are gonna be performed efficiently might end up being four total, maybe six. So the first three or the first two of every set that they do. Now you compound that over four training weeks you're looking at 16, 24, somewhere in that range, reps that were practiced with the technique that you want. Yes, you can have them do broomstick squats, technique squats, and all the other stuff, but as I noted here, load and weight changes the stimulus for them to be able to do it. So you can have great technique with a broomstick, but put 70% loaded bar weight on the back and see what happens. They have to be able to be proficient in a loaded pattern. So what's gonna accomplish more, those 20 maybe, assuming most of those are you know decent, 20 reps over a month period of time, or what if they did 10 sets of two and they get 20 repetitions per week now they got 80 repetitions in a month period of time, comparatively speaking. Now you can, I like to run phases to where I run those sets up. So maybe they start at 10 for week one, the next week they'll go 15, the next week they'll go 20. So you start getting 20 sets of two, how many technical reps are you getting? It, it adds up pretty quick. All right, so this kind of discussion is interesting for me to hear because it's kind of in line with how I stumbled on making routines and programming other people in their own routines. And so when when my clients are new to routine programming, I generally recommend that they start with shorter exercises and low repetitions. And this is really meant to allow multiple chances to address issues and ingrain proper technique. One of the problems I've had people run into that I then adjusted the way I do programs is, you know, I used to play 
let's say etudes and I would do various tempo gradations like 50%, 60%, 70%, but I would play the whole etude. But one of the problems you run into is you may forget some of the things that you struggle with. And yeah, you can record yourself and that's great. But I have found if you just play shorter sections or shorter exercises, it's easier to remember some of the things you struggled with and be able to come up with a plan. So I think shorter bursts where you can really focus and uh, remember what things to fix uh, for, again, a skill development and learning purpose is better. For a performance purpose, it's not, right? We need to play the whole thing through. So the goal or the purpose for why we are doing the work will dictate how we approach organizing it. And to me, it's also interesting that Dave would program 10 sets of two for people instead of two sets of 10 because he notices that people struggle with their ability to focus for longer sets. And I've really, I've felt the most difficult aspect about playing an instrument at a high level was just developing the ability to focus at a high level for the length of time you need to. You know, in an orchestra concert, it's hard to be at that level of focus where everything is optimal and you're putting everything you need to into your instrument and then you rest for, you know, five minutes or something and you fall out of focus, then you got to bring yourself back. And that's a challenge for, you know, trumpet players or trombone players or sometimes percussionists and strings and woodwinds have the opposite problem where they're just constantly in that space and it can be very mentally draining. The good news is, is that focus is something you can develop just like any other skill. And so the way you would do that and the application for this particular point is when you're first learning exercises or working on a section of music, not only should you start fairly slow to encourage quality, high quality of playing, but also we should start working in short sections as well. This goes a little bit to the chunking idea from the talent code, where instead of trying to play long sections, chunking allows us to have better focus and be able to get more out of the work. Um, so I don't know, as a general place to start trying to choose sections or exercises that are about eight to 32 bars in length, of course, depending on the musical phrases, yeah, that might be a good place to start. And then as you get better at focus and as you get closer to performance situations or as you're ready to challenge yourself in terms of fatigue, go ahead and start making things uh, longer and make the exercises or sections longer. That's going to be a good way to challenge yourself, but in a progressive manner when you're ready to do that, where you'll be able to experience a more successful repetition. So if something like focus is something you struggle with, try that. Try shortening the exercises. Not necessarily that you have to put more breaks in terms of I'm going to rest for five minutes every this amount of minutes, but just play shorter sections and then repeat them a few times so that you can remember what you need to work on and you can really focus for the length of time that you're playing. Okay, that's it for that. A little bit shorter section. This next section is the last uh, thing we're going to talk about, this technical proficiency thing. It's not a super long discussion either, uh, but I think it's really important for this whole discussion to think about uh, where we might start some of this work for long-term progress. So, uh, yeah, let's just uh, move on, I suppose. So 
So for this last quote, Dave is giving a real life example of his work with an athlete that he considers uh, to have had the potential to set world records in what he would describe as about two to two and a half years or four to five powerlifting meets. And he kind of described what he told this uh, athlete uh, what he thinks the long-term progression should look like, and then begun to discuss what it, what their work at this exact time should look like, or the beginning of the process should look like. So let's listen to what Dave has to say, and then I'll kind of dive into what, for me, what I think some of the takeaways uh, could be. I've had a few few lifters over the years, super strong ones, that have come out to train. One, the most recent came out and had definitely had the potential to be damn pretty close to an all-time world record. Not immediately, but I would say this person was in striking range within probably four, five meets. So when I spoke to this person at the very beginning about the how the program and how the would be laid out long-term perspective what i mentioned was your potential is definitely there to be able to do this let's look at trying to get this done within four to five meets maybe six the reason for the variance there is when it's a competitive lifter it happens so you can have a meet that just goes wrong so you got you got to be prepared for that variance to where things just don't work out because it is, you have to put it all together on one day. It's a different conversation. It's not relevant to what I'm speaking about here. So after that, and then being able to say, okay, look, this is kind of how the process is going to build out over two years, maybe two and a half years. So what we need to do is knowing where this end is. So beginning with the end in mind, knowing where this is, what's the most optimal thing to spend our time on now, currently? The lowest hanging fruit that we have here is the technical aspect. So let's take care of that now. And when we do this, let's build this out to where we get in an ass load of good, solid technical reps over the first three months. So let's keep the load down, let's keep the weight down, 50, 60%-ish. Let's keep the sets up, 10, 15, 20. Work on the conditioning at the same time with this. So we're blowing up the number of technical reps as I already explained a little bit earlier. So that goes up and let's just cycle through that work on some of the weak points that we see, but let's just really, really focus on this technique. Easy sell at that point, because that person then already knows that what we're looking for here is in two and a half years, four four to six meets. So what's three months now to be able to take care of these technical issues, which can make a, it can make a big difference for any lifter, especially if there's any issues with what that technique is. So all that focus was spent there for, it was probably 10, 12 weeks. And then this lifter 
ended up being in a situation to where they were in a group with a bunch of the lifters that were just working up, maxing out, just basically for the hell of it, because it's not very often that you get a whole big group of lifters together. And this lifter wanted to um, just kind of see where they were at. I wasn't completely for it, but I wasn't completely against it either. I was kind of curious as well. So I said, screw it. You know, just make sure you're mentally solid. Work up, kind of see what happens. Ended up squatting a 50-pound PR. Keep in mind, none of the loading, and this is an advanced lifter that we're talking about. None of the loading was over 60% for 10 to 12 weeks. It was a 50-pound PR. So at that point, it became even easier to coach or consult with this person moving forward because now there was that buy-in and there were still some, some, just some minor technical things that could have been adjusted at that point to be able to help them move forward. Long story short, the end goal, it didn't happen, you know, for multitude of reasons that weren't really associated with the training, life happens, so let's just put it that way. But I can give that same type of story that I've seen happen over and over and over again so many times that it's part of the long-term planning process. And it doesn't matter if it's a beginner or an intermediate or an advanced because that can always be cleaned up and the process is still instructing given the auto creating the the mental checklist so they have the auto suggestions letting that become automatic and then automatic with speed then automatic with speed and strength and then under fatigue and then under extreme pressure now, in the case that I just described, we didn't get to the point to where it was starting to become implemented into the, into the program under fatigue or extreme pressure. So those attributes were still yet to be developed. So the potential with this is huge. And this is why I'm doing this podcast just on this. I personally could not agree with this sentiment that Dave shared more. Uh, I think if you're able to think six, nine, even 12 months in advance to a goal that you've set, you're able at that point to ask the question, what is the best use of my time right now? And when you're not in a hurry to get better or you're not in a hurry, you're willing to let the process work, it's so much easier to break things apart and to begin to address any technical weaknesses you might have. You know, this is gonna require us to move backwards just a little bit, right? We're not we're not necessarily thinking, I'm just gonna plow forward, but I'm actually gonna back up slightly and begin to address some of the root problems that might exist so that I can shore up these technical um, weaknesses that I have so that when I put it all back together, I'm operating at the same material I was playing, but at a much higher and a much more consistent level. 
with my clients, I have done this kind of work with a few clients. I've made programs that have broken down different aspects of playing the trumpet. So, you know, first attacks, articulation, consistency, flexibility, with sort of an emphasis on flow, uh, upper register and lower register. And this is to search for any inefficiencies in their setup. So we do this kind of thing. It's a lot of drills. It's really boring. It's not exciting, but it is meant to give them an opportunity to say, is there any step that I skipped in the learning process or that I didn't really dive into as much as I should have. So the idea is, as after a month or two of that kind of work, when you start going back to regular exercises, remember we talked about after a month or two, we're saying things become more automatic. So we're going to introduce speed, or in this case, we're going to introduce more musical exercises that are shorter. That work that they're going to be able to do is even more productive because they spent a month or two gaining information about what they're trying to imprint on each exercise. So for example, in a given musical exercise, from that work, they will know how to set up for the first attack and for it to be successful. So instead of missing the first note and saying, what do I do? They may miss the first note and then say, I know exactly how to fix that because I know what success looks like. Same thing with articulation. When their articulation isn't consistent, they have an, uh, an ability and a knowledge base to say, well, when I fixed this before, this is what I was imprinting and they understand how to fix it. Uh, and then the same thing with maybe the flow or the flexibility type work where they know how to keep the air forward and consistent. So if it's not happening, they can make a quick fix. Overall, this is not saying that we're going to move from I'm struggling to literally everything is perfect, but it rather, it just means that they're able to consistently auto suggest the solution to their issue, making practice significantly more productive. It's made more productive by the fact that when we make mistakes, we can fix them quickly. So we're reducing the amount of practice done where things are inefficient or quote, not correct by being able to fix the problems more quickly. And we did that by just backing up and making sure we understood what a particular fix for a particular problem was. So for me, the application, uh, sometimes it can be necessary to back up a bit in difficulty of exercise or uh, repertoire so that we can make sure we're doing things correctly. By correctly, all I mean is that in a manner that is healthy, sustainable, and won't lead to injury. So if you're willing to do that, but unsure of how to correctly set up for, let's say, like first attack success, now you have a specific question for a teacher or coach, right? So if you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I want to make sure my first attacks, I understand. I struggle a little bit with making with making them consistent and having the note that I want to be there, there when I attack. And then you start to address that and you make an exercise and then you realize you don't really have any idea actually at all how to approach that. Well, now when you go to a teacher or a coach, you can say, this is something I realize I don't know how to do it. Do you have a solution for this? And you can get specific answers to specific questions that you have in your own progress or your own practicing uh, journey rather. So that's pretty much the end of what I had to talk about. I hope that this has been hope, uh, helpful or beneficial in some way. Um, if you have any questions, you can find me at that's not spit.com or reach out to me on um, Facebook or Instagram at that's not spit. Um, I really hope that 
these kinds of discussions are, are beneficial and useful. And if you want more of them, please let me know. Please uh, let me know if this is something you want more of because uh, I find it interesting. I always learn a lot and I really enjoy sharing these kinds of ideas um, with all of you. So um, let me know. And um, I want to thank Dave Tate and Dave Tate's Table Talk and Elite FTS for let me do this, Dave, if you hear this and you don't want me to use it and you want me to take it down, I suppose let me know and I'll do that. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his uh, excellent work on mastering this podcast, especially that it's uh, on the road. Uh, he's got a little bit more work to do, I think, than normal, so I appreciate that. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 that's not Spit Fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Have you ever had a routine that you weren't always able to keep? Well, that's what happened to Ryan in today's episode, and he was still able to produce something that he can be proud of. Routine can give our lives rhythm, comfort, and sometimes even meaning, but there's more to life than sticking to the same routine day after day. So take a left when you usually take a right. Stand up if you always sit down, but try not to overdo it. Though beauty can often arise from unexpected twists, we won't have a foundation for it if we don't have routine. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan. <laughs>